Welcome to the FCC Podcast. Hear all the stories, worship, and teaching from Sunday service. Want to connect with us or learn more about FCC? Visit us at FCCETown.com.
foundation, our rock, the only solid ground. As nations rise and fall, kingdoms strong now shaken. We trust forever in Your name, the name of Jesus. We trust the name of Jesus. You are the only King forever, Almighty God.
you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. So, so good With every breath that I am made I will sing of the goodness of God I love your voice You have led me through the fire In darkest nights You were close like no So back in 1970, some of you are going to remember that, and just so you're aware, that's the year I was born, okay? Let that sink in for some of you. 
1970, one of the biggest films of the year was a film that starred Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw. It was a movie that was called Love Story. And Love Story was um, a, a little bit of a current day at the time look at Romeo and Juliet. And um, there are a lot of things that came out of the movie Love Story. The, the, the theme song probably outlasted the movie itself. You don't, you don't really see it popping up on uh, streaming any, anymore. But one of the phrases that came out of that movie has also lingered with us. And one of the phrases from that movie said, um, love means never having to say you're sorry. Love means never having to say you're sorry. And so people have kind of latched onto that and they did latch onto that and it was said and reset and repurposed and reapplied to life that love is never having to say you're sorry and it became kind of the true definition of what true love is. True love is never having to say you're sorry. I can tell you from experience that that could not be further from the truth. Because there comes times in true love when you have to say, I'm sorry. We've started to figure that out. There there was a, a few years back that um, modern-day theologian Justin Bieber um, was sharing a song called Sorry, and in that song, he asked this question, is it too late now to say sorry? And One Republic had an answer for that question when they had a song that was entitled, yeah, it's too late to apologize. I happen to like that song. Um, but I think there's evidence that people have kind of lived with this mentality that there's, there's a time frame when it comes to apologies and sorry. There's statute of limitations where you're not allowed to say you're sorry anymore because too much time has passed by. And we've kind of lived with that and to the point that if we've let too much time go by that maybe we aren't willing to say sorry or willing to apologize. And yet there's plenty of evidence out there that even though it might have been more meaningful had it come earlier, that really in every instance there is no time limit to saying you're sorry, and there is no time limit to apologies. And, and so this idea of being sorry is something that we're gonna talk about today, and, and there are some people in your life for whom the next two words that need to come out of your mouth to them is, I'm sorry. And these are some really important people who are in your life who need to hear from you, I'm sorry, and maybe one of those is your relationship with God, and God needs to hear from you. I'm sorry. But I'm sorry are often two of the more difficult words to get to actually come out of our mouth, or at least to come out of our mouth and, and mean those words, I'm sorry. Have you ever, and, and let, me, let me ask parents in the room, have you ever as a parent forced your kids to say, I'm sorry, okay? You were in a moment, it was tense, things were just kind of landlocked, you weren't gonna go anywhere, this is not moving forward, we gotta move on with this moment, and so you say to your kids, you tell your sister you're sorry. You know they don't mean it, and you don't care that they don't mean it, you just need I'm sorry to be spoken so we can move on. Anybody? Uh Uh-huh, a couple of parents are willing to admit it. Or how about this one, You, you... Have you ever said, I'm sorry, 
And yet in the back of your mind and in your heart of hearts, you knew for a fact that you did not mean, I'm sorry. Maybe you had your fingers crossed behind your back when you said, I'm sorry. And I'm not talking about doing that when you're eight years old. I'm talking some of us do that now. Have you ever accepted an apology from somebody? And you knew pretty full well that they were just words and they didn't really mean it. But you were going to accept it so we could just move forward. My guess is the answer for lots of us and, and, and will continue to be for lots of us, yes, yes, and yes. Because I'm sorry are, are two words that we often just throw out there with hopes that we can move on, but we don't really mean them. They just become lip service. And so here's the dilemma that takes place is that verbal sorrow expressed without any kind of repentance at all, it's just noise. And you can usually spot it, you can pick it out. It comes from the tone of voice that people use or it comes from the body language that they seem to have when they're telling you I'm sorry or the body language that isn't there when they tell you that they're sorry and you can pick it out very quickly that that I'm sorry is completely and totally fake. So how does I'm sorry, how do those words take on real meaning coming out of your mouth? I think there are lots of places that, that teach us how to do that, but one of the major ones that you can probably guess that I lean into is the Bible, is God's word. And God speaks to this subject of sorrow and speaks to this subject of, uh, of multiple ways to say that you're sorry. And so if you've got your Bible with you, we're gonna kind of be all over the place today, but I'd love for you to go to this first verse in particular. Maybe you've got a phone or a tablet that has a Bible app on it, you can use that as well. And pull those out and turn to 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul speaks to the, the kind of sorrows that exist in this world. And he's talking into a world from 2,000 years ago, and yet what he says is so true then as much as it is now. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, here's what Paul writes. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but sorrow brings death. And Paul's making a very clear distinction that there's two kinds of sorries. There's the I'm sorry that's just lip service, and then there's the I'm sorry that actually brings about change. Okay, there's godly sorrow, and then there's worldly sorrow. And, and the two uh, are different largely based on the results that come from them. That when it comes to godly sorrow, the result that's going to come your way is that it brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves absolutely no regret. Isn't that what we want? We want life to move up and to the right. We want life to kind of clear that, that weight that we feel on ourselves. We, we know when we've done wrong. We know when we've made mistakes. We know when we need to say, I'm sorry, and mean it. And if we participate in a godly form of sorrow, that weight gets lifted, and there's no regrets, and we move on. But then Paul says, look, there's also worldly sorrow that just says the words, and worldly sorrow brings death. That's bad. Okay, and the distinction between the two is really plain and really clear. And so today, I just want to kind of unpack those two worlds that Paul gives us, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Let, let, let's look at worldly sorrow first. And, and what I've observed about this kind of sorrow that we have when we 
just say I'm sorry, but there's nothing really on the other side of it. The, the I'm sorry that has our fingers crossed. The, the I'm sorry that we're saying just so we can move on. That's what Paul calls worldly sorrow. And, and with worldly sorrow, it is almost always horizontal. Meaning that it is just something that we express and there is nothing that changes about who we are. We're, we're no different on the other side of saying I'm sorry in those situations than when we started. Now, let me go back to our, our parents who are here for just a second again. As a parent, when your child, you find them doing something that they're not supposed to do, or you catch them saying something that they're not supposed to say, and you call them out on it, and while you're calling them out on it, you're not even done calling them out on it, but while you're calling them out on it, they kind of just can't say it fast enough, it just spills out of their face, and they're just like, I'm sorry. In that moment, do you honestly believe that they are sorry for what they did? How many of you as parents, and I'm talking to our experienced parents here, how many of you as parents actually believe that when your kid, right off the bat, midway through conversation, spits out as fast as they can, I'm sorry, that they actually mean they're sorry for what they did? Good, not a single hand. Because they're not sorry for what they did wrong. They're sorry because they got caught. That's right. That's why they're sorry. Now, don't be mistaken. There's a lot of emotion wrapped up in getting caught, okay? And so there are going to be tears and snot that comes with getting caught, okay? The worldly sorrow that just says I'm sorry because I got caught, not because of what I did, is still going to have emotion that comes. But that's the thing about emotion. Emotion comes and goes, and in that emotional moment of getting caught, and in that emotional moment of I'm sorry, there's blubbering that happens and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't last. And as soon as the emotion is gone, nothing really changes. In fact, it's in those kind of emotional, worldly sorrow kind of moments when we're just saying I'm sorry because we're wanting to get out of the situation and we're, get, we're saying I'm sorry because I got caught where we will say things like, I promise I'll never do it again. That's not true. Because there's not change that's going to come. When the emotion fades away and everybody's forgotten about the moment, we can go back to the way it was. And so worldly sorrow, always, almost always, horizontal. And worldly sorrow is almost always passive towards sin. Because worldly sorrow is not really interested in actually eliminating sin from life. Worldly sorrow just wants to kind of keep sin at bay. Worldly sorrow believes that sin is just part of who I am and so sin is gonna be part of my life and I'm just gonna learn to train sin and I'm gonna learn to tame sin and I'm gonna learn to keep sin in control and I'm gonna cage it and only have it there but it's gonna be there under my jurisdiction. The problem is that you, you can't actually do that. People have been trying to do that since we have existed on the planet and none of us have figured it out yet. You can't train it, you can't tame it, you can't control it. Sin is in your life. 
And you, by your own will and your own willpower, have no ability to eliminate it from your life. And so the best we can seek to do is just put it in a cage for a time. Back in the 90s, um, when the Fox network was just getting off the ground, some of us remember that. There used to only be three television networks, and, and then, then Fox came along to add a fourth. And when Fox was coming onto the airwaves, um, the things that they could put on TV were pretty limited because um, everybody else had the rights to the other stuff. And so they kind of put on any television show that they could come up with. And so there were a lot of shows that they had that were only on for like a season or two. One of those back in the 90s was a show called When Animals Attack. It's a great title. Um, not really inventive, but it is descriptive. You get to know right off the bat that this is a show that's about animals attacking. It's a good title, When Animals Attack. Animals are going to attack other animals, and animals are going to attack other people. And the thing is that they would show the videos of animals attacking. Some of these were caught on film or caught on security or, 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 or caught in somebody's camcorder. And, and they would show these animals attacking, but they would do that with a, a live studio audience in the crowd. So they would, they would capture other people's responses and reactions to these animals doing horrible things to each other and horrible things to, other, to, to people. And then they would show the crowd responding. One of the... Um, scenes that they showed. Again, this is something somebody caught on a camcorder at a circus event. They put a, a lion in a cage. And the lion's ferocious lion. They get it all stirred up wild. It's roaring all over the place. It's beating against the cage. And, and then, then this woman walks into the cage. She walks in very calmly. She walks in keeping very strict eye contact with the lion and she calms the lion down. And she gets the lion into the center of the cage. And she walks over to the lion. She climbs up on top of the lion. And she lays down back to back on the back of this lion. Now remember, this show is called When Animals Attack. Okay, So something's not going to go the right way here. In an instant, that lion turns and flips the woman off of his back and then charges after her, roaring all through the crowd, swiping at this woman, trying to maul this girl. They get her out of the cage, okay? But while they're showing all this, they're also shooting to scenes of people in the crowd. And there's people who are covering their eyes and there's people who have these just gasp looked on their faces and wide eyes. A couple of things come away from that. One, if you're going to a taping of a show called When Animals Attack, stuff like that is gonna happen. You need to be prepared for that. But secondly, animals and humans don't mix. Because no matter how well-trained and how well-tamed and how controlled that lion is, there is no changing the fact that it is a ferocious lion, and instinctively, a lion is a fierce apex predator, which means that a lion is either eating something that it just killed, or it is looking for what it's going to kill next so it can eat that, and that's all that's on its mind. And you can't train that out of a lion. It is always, always, always still there. And not to hate on animals and 
You don't need to send emails or call Peter or whatever you might do, but um, the only real safety to be found that's real, honest to goodness, foolproof safety if you're going to put a human in a cage with a lion is not to try and tame the lion, not to try and train the lion, but it is to kill the lion. And that is the nature of sin in you. See, we live with this mentality that we can work hard enough, that we can put in the time, that we can be super intentional enough, that we can train our sin to not show up in our life, that with a whip and a chair, we can make our sin submit to our will, that we can make our sin go into the cage and stay in the cage by our own willpower. But the truth is, it will attack. It's what Peter wrote about when he said this, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. We are wrong if we think that we can train, that we can tame, that we can control and beat back our own sin in our own life. But that's the way that the world thinks. That if we can get strong enough or we can get smart enough or we can be inventive enough or if we can be wise enough that we can control sin in our life, life. That's worldly sorrow. And so when things mess up, we just say, I'm sorry, within the back of our head thinking, mm, I gotta get that sin caged up better next time. Worldly sorrow is almost always horizontal. And worldly sorrow is almost always passive towards sin in our life. And that leads to death. So then there's godly sorrow. And godly sorrow looks different. For, first of all, godly sorrow can see. Okay? Godly sorrow opens your eyes to who you are. Godly sorrow opens your eyes to how you are and how things are around you. But here's the greatest part of all. Godly sorrow shows you how it can be better. Godly sorrow allows you to see a path that makes life better. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus told a story. It's a story that we've labeled as the story of the prodigal son. He didn't have a title for it, he just told a story. It's a story about a rich man who had two sons. And the younger son decided that he was tired of living at home. And so he wanted his inheritance, he wanted what he knew was coming to him eventually, and he was gonna leave home and not have to live under the thumb of his dad because he felt like his dad controlled him way too much. And the Bible says that the man went out and he squandered his money, squandered his wealth on wild living. Now you can interpret that however you want to and what that means and what that is that he did, but he blew through everything. And he couldn't find a job, and he found a job doing menial tasks, and wasn't enough to pay rent, wasn't enough to pay for food, and so he found himself feeding pigs, and looking at the food that he was going to feed the pigs, and looking at the food that the pigs wouldn't even eat, that was still wallowing around in the mud, and thinking to himself, I'm hungry enough to eat that. 
And that's when Jesus said something very powerful about godly sorrow and where this young man had come to. He said in verse 17 of Luke 15, when he came to his senses, see before he wasn't thinking straight, before he didn't have all the pieces figured out, he was seeing life in kind of a blur, he saw life in a lacking of reality kind of way, but he finally got to a place where he could see and he could see clearly and he could understand how things really were. And when he could finally see, when he came to his senses, he could see a path forward. He could see a way out of the life he was in. He could see how things could get better. And the way better was to go back home, not necessarily to go back home and be a son. He was willing to go back home and just be a servant in his father's house because that would be so much better than life is now. All I have to do is go home with some godly sorrow that truly admits that I'm sorry. That's what truth does for us. When we can see clearly because of truth, because of God's truth. God's word is truth. And God's word is here to show us a path, to show us a way. Now there are people who would claim that God's word, that the Bible is really just there to make you feel bad about yourself. That, that the Bible's just there to beat up on you. The Bible's just there to, to, to make you feel ashamed of who you are. And typically that, those are words that are spoken by people who aren't actually reading the Bible. That's just what they've heard about the Bible and so that's what they now repeat about the Bible. The Bible's not there to beat you up. The Bible's not there to make you feel shame. The Bible is there to show you a path, to show you a way out that is so much better than the life that you're living. David knew that. David wrote about that in in, uh, Psalm 119. He said, your word, God's word, is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. The word of God helps us see It helps us know the way. And that may sound strange, but when I read God's word, I can see. I can see me. I can see who I am. I can see what I'm coming up short on. And sometimes what God's word helps us do is to call sin, sin. And to see sin that's in our life and be willing to say, look, I have sin that's in my life. And that's very uncomfortable to do that. There's no doubt but it's not shame, it's God's word revealing truth to us. And when you see sin, and when you admit sin, and when you can take sin as your own and claim that it's you who have done this, godly sorrow not only helps you see, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's another attribute of godly sorrow that it leads to repentance, and there's probably no greater example of that than in Luke chapter seven. It's not necessarily a story that Jesus told. It's a story that happened to Jesus that Luke records for us. And the story goes like this. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, let me pause there for just a second because we don't know what her sinful life was. There's Lots of scholars who have chimed in on this who believe that she was probably a prostitute, and that's certainly a possibility. But whatever it was that she was doing in life, 
wasn't just a one-time thing. It wasn't just a moment. It was something that had marked her and defined her as a sinful woman there in town. And she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now that alabaster jar of perfume, really probably no matter what she um, did for a living and how much money she had, that jar of perfume was probably the most prized possession she owned, the most expensive thing that she had in her possession. And she gathered that jar of perfume and she walked into the house of a religious man. Now no matter what it was that she did for a living, she lived a good ways away from this man because he would not have put himself in close proximity to her. And whatever it was that she did, it was known who she was and it was known what this, whose house this was. And so what she was walking into was uncomfortable at best. And she knew as she walked into the room and she knew as she walked into that particular house that there would be all kinds of eyes on her and there'd be all kinds of people looking at her and thinking about her and wondering about her. And she felt all of the shame. She felt all of the judgment that was being placed on her but it would not stop her. We keep reading that as she stood behind him, that's Jesus, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now just think about that for a second. What does it take to wet someone's feet with your tears? What kind of tears are those? That's not, hey, she's really upset and the bottom lip is quivering and she finally kind of pushed out a tear that came rolling down her cheek in a very kind of Hallmark movie moment. This was sobbing that this woman was doing. This was snot and tears coming out of her face. This is a woman who is just overwhelmed with sorrow. Sorrow because of what she's done, sorrow because of who she is, sorrow because she sees who she really is and how things really are and how things are around her. She sees all of that and she knows all of that and she feels sorrow and she feels weight and she feels guilt. And some of us, all of us, have been there. We have wept those kinds of tears. Some of us may have wept those kinds of tears this week. She sobs enough that she wets the feet of Jesus with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. And when she did that, it was just this beautiful scene, this moment in her life. We don't know who this woman was. We don't have details of her life after this. But for her, these are not just words that she's speaking where she's saying to Jesus, I'm sorry. And there's no change that comes after it. These are not, I'm sorry, and there's nothing to come. This is a moment. This is an act of repentance at the feet of of Jesus. She is owning her sin. Godly sorrow at Jesus' feet leads to repentance. 
Godly sorrow has to be something more than just horizontal. It can't just be the words that we speak and then there's nothing that happens. It's about a vertical relationship we have with God. Even for those moments of sorrow that we need to say I'm sorry to someone that we, we love, someone that we have a relationship with, that that's part of it. But chances are in the midst of that, there is also a vertical relationship that has been scarred by whatever it is that we need to say sorry for. And the only way that we actually take on sin in our life is through that vertical relationship with God. Because it's not trying to tame the lion and train the lion and control the lion. Sin is an apex predator. And you have to take out the gun and you have to put a bullet in the head of sin. Because we cannot get passive about the sin that's in our life. And we cannot believe that we can train or that we can tame or that we can control that sin. Sin has to be put to death. And the only way to do that is to own it, to see sin for what it really is, and to take it to the feet of Jesus and have a vertical relationship with him where we say, I'm sorry. David wrote about that. David had some experience in telling God he was sorry. Psalm 32, 5, David said this, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me, and my guilt is gone, David said. And what David is getting at is that Godly sorrow will lead us not only to rebellion, but godly, or repentance. Godly sorrow will lead us to confession. And those are the words of a guy who had some things to confess. David was a man who was labeled as one who was after God's own heart. He's the only person in the Bible described that way, as a man after God's own heart. And yet... The lion of sin turned on him ferociously. David slept with another woman when he was married, another married woman. She became pregnant. To try and cover it up, he sent for her husband to come home, and that didn't work, and so he had her husband killed and then married the woman quickly so that maybe nobody would pay attention to the timeline and it would all go away. And then a very um, close and loving and strong-willed friend came to David when David thought he had gotten away with it and thought that nobody knew what he had done. And this friend said, "Um, man, you are living a sorry, not sorry kind of life. And you think nobody knows, but God knows. And David had kind of gotten to a place where he was hiding his guilt, and he'd gotten to a place where he was no longer confessing the sins that were in his life. And so once again, godly sorrow, real vertical sorrow led to confession. And when that happened, and we don't know exactly how the Psalms are put together and when they happened in, in David's life, the, the, one that, the ones that he wrote, but It would make sense that Psalm 51 is somewhere around this time in David's life where he said this, 
Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt and purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. And David came clean with God. And David let God in on everything. He told God everything that was going on in his life, which doesn't seem like something that would be hard to do since you can kind of keep your relationship and your conversations with God private between just you and him, but we struggle to do this. But when David came clean, when David, David laid everything out, he found that it was far more easy to easily kill the sin that was in his life. So huge takeaway for us from really the most tragic season in David's life. He came clean with God. Now why would you do that? If you're getting away with it and nobody knows and it seems like everything's going along just fine and you've kind of managed to hide it all and keep it all down and nobody seems to be picking up on it, why? Why come clean with God? Well, because it's actually impossible for the enemy the roaring lion, the devil, to accuse you of anything if you are already fully known. And suddenly, because of the vertical sorrow that we have with our maker, with our creator, with our God, we are able to enter into some horizontal relationships with one another and actually say, I'm sorry, and mean it. Because we are fully known by our God. David shared the immense value of this godly sorrow that needs to exist in your life. And let me, let me just close by reading what David wrote in Psalm 32. We read verse five already, but I wanna give you a little bit more. And what David goes into is really what the rewards are for us. Rewards that come our way if we are involved in godly Sorrow, where I'm sorry means something more than just the words that are coming out of our mouth. When I'm sorry means more than I'm sorry that I got caught. And the rewards that show up are the rewards that really our life has been looking for. And so if you will, if you want to, I just encourage you, the words aren't gonna be on the screen, so you can just close your eyes and listen to these words from David. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt, and I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly Pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment, 
for you are my hiding place and you protect me from trouble and you surround me with songs of victory. David said, you are my hiding place. And some of us have been working really hard to hide from our sin. But could I suggest that instead of hiding in this very worldly way, that we would hide in the vertical relationship that we have with our God, that we would be fully known. Because as it turns out, true love does mean having to say, I'm sorry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, we could probably do a pretty decent job of going back and clicking through the things that are in our past that you've already forgiven us for, that we have maybe forgiven ourselves for, and we can recognize that it was good to confess those moments to you. And God, sometimes when we start talking about confessing and we start talking about repentance, we go back into our past and we grab those things that have already been kind of put to death because we've revealed ourselves to you and it's, and it's more comfortable talking about that than the discomfort of talking about those things that are right now real in our life, that are sin in our life, that we think we are controlling, we think we are training, we think we are taming, but we cannot do it without you. And so God, would you challenge us, for those of us who have kind of been living through worldly sorrow where we throw out the I'm sorry and I apologize when it seems necessary so we can just move on and get out of the situation and let's move down the timeline. And instead, would you help us to have godly sorrow? Where we say I'm sorry because we can actually see who we are and we can see how we can get better and we can see the path that you've laid out for us. And godly sorrow that cause, cause, causes us and leads us to repentance and leads us to confession. God, would you help us to be known by you, to be fully known for all that we are and for you to show us the way. We thank you that we can trust in your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness all because of Jesus and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask this morning that you'd stand with me. And as you do that, as we get ready to sing, there may be some who are here who have never um, officially sought out the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. And maybe today needs to be that day that you say yes to Jesus and you're baptized in his name and you let his life and his perfection and his truth flood over you. Or maybe you've already made that decision and you want to be a part of this family, you want to be a part of this church. We'd love to have you uh, be here with us as we're seeking to lean into God. But all of us have an opportunity right now just to lift our voices in praise and in worship to one who already knows us. And no matter how much we've been hiding, he knows who we really are. And he's still waiting for us to be fully known by him. 
for us to trust him enough to let him in and to keep that vertical relationship stronger than it's ever been before. May our words of praise and worship share with him and say to him how much we long for that relationship to exist. So let's lift our voices together in worship to him. And if you have a decision to make this morning, we invite you to walk right down these aisles. I'll meet you here. We have folks who will be here to talk with you, pray with you. Let's worship together. The cross has the final word. The cross has the final word. Sorrow may come in the darkest night, but the cross has the final word. The cross has the final word. The cross has the strongest fight but the cross has the final word the cross has the final word the cross has the final There's nothing stronger, nothing. 